Hello everyone and welcome to Quality Talks. And in this edition of Quality Talks, we're talking to a good friend of mine, Marie Cameron. Hello Marie, welcome to Quality Talks. Hi Kathy. Great to have you here. Absolutely fantastic. We've been trying to do this for a long, long time, so I'm glad we finally got around to it. So Marie, I'm going to kick off by saying congratulations because you received the Public Service Medal this year. So that's absolutely brilliant and well-deserved. Tell us what it was for. Thanks, Cathy. I was awarded the Medal for Outstanding Public Service in the area of aged care, specifically improving the lives uh, of older people standards of care in Victoria and my contribution to national policy through the work of the Quality Improvement Unit, which I've been managing for a number of years now. Was there anything in particular around the award that recognised longevity or achievement or just sticking at it for so long? Was there anything in particular that people mentioned? There there were a number of things that people mentioned and it was a very humbling um, experience as well because of what people did mention. The things that I most uh, take away from the award and the nominations One thing was the outputs and things such as the Quality Indicator Program in particular because it's now been picked up nationally uh, by the Commonwealth and its consideration of its rolling out or its actual rolling out of three of the five at this stage. But certainly the commitment over a long period of time was recognised and leadership in the space for driving pretty clear focus, I think, around quality and safety and aged care for a long number of years. The indicators, as I said, did get quite a bit of recognition, but in amongst that, there was a recognition of other companion works, really, that link to the indicator program and looking at more of a systematic approach to driving safety and quality more. Oh, that's an interesting thing when we talk about aged care quality, isn't it? That systematic approach, and I certainly am going to pick up on that a little bit later. But first of all, I'd like to know what was it about your career that led you to your interest in quality in aged care specifically? That's a really good question, uh, Cathy, because when I had a celebration for the Public Service Medal and I did make a speech to a number of people assembled, I made the point that I don't think I know anyone in my career, particularly my nursing career in aged care, that ever decided they would make aged care a career. So I happened on it like most people. But once I did happen on aged care, I realised that there was a lot that I could do to contribute to it. First as a nurse at the bedside, through to very quickly escalating into quite senior positions and ultimately my role in the department, you know, over a number of years. Because prior to the department, I was working in both public and not-for-profit and in fact the the, uh, federal government at the time around aged care. So it's been quite an iterative career. But on every count, there has been opportunities to do something because it's an area that's fairly under-recognised, particularly around safety and quality. So I'd have to say that my interest in quality and safety was absolutely cemented with getting the job in the Quality Improvement Unit in the state, which was an inaugural position. The unit didn't exist before that. And it's a culmination of a lot of experience coming to bear in a policy setting and not just making policy or influencing policy really about looking at the solutions you know how how to not drive a single organization which I was very comfortable with but actually how do you create system change in the, a lot of other organizations who influence and persuade
persuasion, really, because you're not there to do it yourself, mm, yeah. which I was comfortable with. But yeah. how do you, in the role I had around safety and quality, influence the outcomes for a lot of people through through the organisation where those people have been cared for? Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it, that that role was created. So someone in the Department of whether it was, I'm not sure whether it was health or human services or what it was. It might have been human services, was it, back then? I actually think it was the Department of Health and Family Services. Oh, so far heavens. back, I'm, yeah. I can't quite remember myself. So many iterations since then. Someone must have recognised a need. Well, like in many ways it still is today, the need was recognised through a regulation change. So the Commonwealth brought into force the Aged Care Act of 1997, and that meant by the 1st of January 2001, every single home in Australia needed to be accredited. The state government had a lot of homes in excess of 6,000 people living in almost 200 aged care homes in Victoria. There was a, certainly an increased recognition that the state needed to have more investment and uh, assurance around what was happening in those homes in order to ensure that Homes met their accreditation requirements, particularly as the accreditation was linked to funding from the Commonwealth. And so failure to meet accreditation meant essentially your funding would be yep. terminated. Yes. So that was quite an incentive then. <laughs> it was, look it was an enormous incentive, yes. Yes. as compliance still is today yes. for a lot of things. Yes, that hasn't changed really, has it? No, it hasn't. So that hasn't. However, our understanding of creating quality and safety in the acute sector, for example, although we certainly have a long way to go there, we have learned a tremendous amount since that time in the, in the last 20 years or so, haven't we? Do you think that's translated to residential aged care? I think there's been a lot of changes in residential aged care. I don't know that the translation that you refer to in the acute sector has occurred in the aged care, aged care sector by the same degree and in fact in many ways I think we're only just now starting to grapple with some of it and I say that in the context of the Commonwealth picking up the indicator program because yes. having the indicator program in itself and getting data around outcomes that relate to care for people will in fact will generate a lot of questions. So I suspect starting to invest in things like quality indicators will start to hasten that movement to more of that translation. Certainly we have been doing that in Victoria, but it wouldn't have happened if our aged care services weren't situated in services. So the organisational context of care delivery really makes an enormous difference and or impact on how you manage safety and quality. And I think public sector services were advantaged because they were situated in service to be working with a number of the programs and the concepts they are today. Having said that, I think, and I've been quite comfortable with this, the, the difference working in the department and working in the sector in any role was I could go home at the end of the day in the sector and I could see what I'd done that day and I knew what, what impact I was having and I could ensure an impact if I wanted to very quickly. Working in the department, I'm very cognizant that the work I have been doing has no impact today. And in fact, the impact in many ways is about establishing precedent for the future. Yes. And being comfortable that whilst I can't change things today, that the work I have been doing will lead to improvements, which is a very different place to be in your career. And particularly as being a nurse, we are so action orientated all the time. Yeah. 
to be able to sit back and to feel comfortable with that. It's interesting, isn't it, that people view quality and safety differently if they're talking about resi to how they talk about it. What's that about? I think it's because we haven't really grappled with what we are talking about at any point in the journey, if we were to call it. I was thinking just earlier that we've been talking about health and well-being and risk to residents for years, and in fact, it's written into the legislation. Yes, that you know, probably before we were talking about it really in a queue. Well, it may it may well be, but you know, the legislation is very clear about provider accountability to protect residents from you know serious risk and to ensure health and well-being. But we've never defined what we mean by it at all, and we we us to talk about quality and safety, it's very hard to latch on to something if we've got, got something to position it within. And we haven't really done that. And I think because of that, we don't have one view about what that means. And we also get into dialogue about care and versus quality of life. And we're very reliant on the regulatory levers to help us shape what we mean by safety and quality. And the regulatory levers through standards We know there are limitations around standards and accreditation. That's well understood. But we haven't really gone beyond that. And where organisations may have gone beyond that, we don't have any system for translating or sharing that. So as a whole system, we arguably could be found wanting. And in fact, a recent report from the OECD clear that Australia is not unique in that, that that globally the systems in aged care are fairly immature relative to what's been so it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because ostensibly these people put their lives in our hands, not just for a, a limited period as they do in acute, but for the long term. So why haven't we come to terms with what is quality of life, what is quality of care, what is a high quality consumer experience beyond compliance in aged care? What, what's stopping us? Well, I think there's probably many things that are stopping us, but I think probably the main thing is that the experience is so individual and subjective. And for the most part, I would say that most people are probably quite happy with their experience, mainly because we've not built an expectation around what the experience could or should be. Okay. So while some people don't have a positive experience, they are often seen to be in the minority, or we will see a failure of care through a home that perhaps doesn't meet standards and is in the public domain. But we're very quick to assign the problem to that single provider and not look at ourselves as a whole system in the way that healthcare does. I think about some of the big health failures that have happened in Australia in recent years and what I note being closely associated with both parts of the system is that health, the first thing that happens is every organisation reviews their own. <laughs> systems when something yes. does go wrong yes, yes. and or there is a, a national approach to working on something across the whole system in the face of any failures like that where we tend to be comfortable with assigning fault at the provider level and with penit- uh, punitive responses and saying well it's not us that we don't have any way to measure really whether we could be the next one. I mean, my experience with homes that have had a number of failures over the years, and that, pre- that predates my role in the department, that was primarily to the work I did, yep. was working with homes who had standards failures. 
was that they never saw it coming, particularly around the standards, that it's always a surprise seemingly when someone doesn't meet standards. Yeah. And, and by not having a threshold by which to objectively judge ourselves on a day-to-day basis mm. in a more sophisticated way, we're going to keep getting surprised. Yes, because we're sort of doomed to repeat that over and over and over unless we change the way we think mm. and what we do, it seems. And I think it does come back to not having a shared understanding about what we mean by risk, health and wellbeing for older people and what services and inputs we need to drive the outcomes because we've not defined what those outcomes are rather than leaving it to the subjective experience mm, yes. of each of those clients who are not in a position to know what to expect. Health yeah. literacy is extremely low with older people and certainly health literacy has not had any real impact in the care sector. No. Not in the way that the acute sector I'm not saying it's not happening in parts, but, you know, we're having this conversation about relativity between what's been happening in a future in the years and the investment. And that's something I'd also say is that we've not seen the same investment that's gone into acute. And maybe it's something about how we value old people more generally mm. that is also a part of that. Yeah, because we talk a lot about valuing them, but not a lot has changed, as you say many men in terms of the way we try to provide a good service, heavily reliant on standards and not really attempting to set that threshold that you were talking about. So what, what would you do if you were back in a service and you wanted to set that threshold so that you knew what was coming, that if you weren't going to do well on, a, on an accreditation visit, you already knew that, you were addressing it, you could anticipate when care was going down. What would you put in well, the first thing I would put in place is to stop thinking about accreditation, if I was to be honest. And I would start being more clear about what are the common issues for older people that are residing in the service. I would use probably a lot of the administrative data that I've already got that I may not be using. What do you mean by administrative data? Things like the funding data that you have within the aged care system that tells you about age and length day and mortality and morbidity mm. and all of those things mm-hmm. and actually do something like that so they can actually start with a baseline of who my client is what their morbidities are what those risks are relating to that and trying to use that data to start informing my workforce my training the outputs and uh, measures that I might put in place around that purely at a level to start with driving safe care, to actually get the care component dealt with in the first instance to minimise the adverse events that might happen to get more consistency, particularly less variation in the care that I'm doing and seek to look at the evidence that might be there around those those areas of risk as my starting point. And I would be doing that for a couple of reasons. One is when organisations do have complaints so I wouldn't. I forgot about accreditation and started focusing on care risks for older people. Then those care risks uh, tend to be the issues that people get into most trouble with for yeah. a compliance situation, yeah. whether it is weight loss or use of issues around restraint or you know managing managing infections. If you're already starting with the premise that these are key risks for older people, and then you're investing yourself in the knowledge around what is the best care in those domains and how do I translate that and embed those into my organisation? 
the standards in themselves will look after themselves. So that, that's the, my starting point for safe care and also being quite clear about the risks that I would assume as an organisation versus those risks that are safe to be assumed by having some good systems that as well. I think also by doing that, I'm going to be enabling people to have a much better experience. If I can manage their and their underlying care needs and comorbidities as well as I can, then I'm enabling them to participate in life as fully as they can and to make choices and to experience a positive outcome rather than being just focused on the quality of life and the experience in but missing out on the fundamentals that actually the underpinning platforms for those outcomes, which is mine. So that's... That's the trick, isn't it? And, and I do want to pick up on that because a lot of your, what you're saying, I'm sure there are people out there now listening thinking, oh, but it's their home and you're talking about it as if it's a hospital. How can we discuss those things as not mutually exclusive? Well, I think we need to think about when home was instituted as, a, as the nomenclature for the sector. Previous to that, they were called hostels and nursing homes, mm, and then they became right. aged care homes. Yes. And I think it's quite right to actually refer to and emphasise the need for home because for the most people, this is the last place that they're going to reside. And yes, whilst they've got underlying comorbidities and may not experience wellness all of the time, they optimising the wellness they can experience is important because this is actually where they're living. And the whole system recognises that by even assuming that people will pay for their accommodation. It is a market market environment, and it was even before the most recent reforms. People have always been required to put a significant part of their pension towards their accommodation. So it's it's been well recognised even before we started calling them homes, even when they were nursing homes and hostels. And in fact, hostels, you could bonds there in recognition it was someone's home and people needed capital. But... I don't think we should shy away from wanting to call them homes because that is about relating to the experience of the care and the total service package that they're going to get because they're not going anywhere else for the most part. No. And I don't think that they're incompatible things to think about, having excellent clinical care to enable a fantastic experience for people. But a lot of people do find those things mutually exclusive. So they say, oh, no, can't talk about clinical care because that seems to be somehow at odds with quality of life. But what you're saying is interdependent. Completely interdependent. Yeah. And we've also picked up quality of life in a hospitality model. And I think that's fair enough too because you are going to be living there and it's a lived experience. Mm. So I don't think we should should, um, should not emphasise that. I think it's important. And the one thing I will say over the years is the environments have improved enormously. The amenities have improved enormously which also in turn means the work environment has improved for staff as well. So they're absolutely not mutually exclusive. They're absolutely inclusive and they are intertwined. And why are we not doing that? It probably comes back to where I first started. We don't have a common view about what we really mean by health yes. in the yeah. healthcare sector. And I think if we had a shared view about what that was and that it was well articulated, that would give us a platform to actually maybe resolve some of those things. Yeah. And the, the population of resi aged care is changing too. It's changed dramatically since the early days to 
people's age and the, the comorbidities they bring with them and where they are at in their life when they come into residential aged care home. So perhaps we haven't come to grips with that change in terms of their well-being and quality of life needs, but also, you know, some serious clinical care needs. That's a really interesting um, comment, and I hear that a lot. Yes, there has been a change over the years, and I noticed that, and I was reflecting myself earlier, I think it was about the mid-90s, where we admitted someone from acute hospital within days of having had a stroke. And before that, we wouldn't have seen anyone for six weeks because there would have been some level of rehabilitation or a sense that, you know, you would stay there until such time as your condition has resolved as much as it would before you'd make those sort of decisions. But notwithstanding that, I think we are still getting the same profile of clients. Maybe the numbers have changed somewhat with the other levers around home care. And we talk about increased complexity, but I'm not actually quite sure that that's the case. I think the types of care really haven't changed. Maybe the numbers of people with the type of care has changed because there's more more people with that same degree of complexity, mm. if, if you like. Mm. But what has changed is there's been an enormous skills mix change mm. in that same period. You just look at the Commonwealth Workforce Census, there's been a diminution of skills and qualifications in the sector at the same time as the sector growing. So I think this is actually untested as to really whether people are getting more complex or whether our perception is changing because our skill level has changed. No, that's interesting. Either way, it's not necessarily a good thing. Skill levels are going down, regardless of the, the type of consumer mix. Well, this again comes back to, you know, workforce is a key input yeah. for driving safe like yeah, I mean, no one's going to argue with that. What we do argue about is well, what is the ideal skill mix? And again, I come back to our starting point. If we can't start at a common point of what is good health care look yes. like, we, how do we start to talk about what is the appropriate staff mix? And I think, you know, we, we are a long way down the track and, you know, I, absolutely things have improved over time. But I think we've still got some fundamentals we haven't really grappled with to help shape the future direction because what we're hearing is there's going to be more and more people with more complex care needs. And we're saying that and we're hearing that people are more complex now. But if you look at length of stay, it hasn't really changed very much. That's interesting. So I do wonder whether there are other things happening that are yeah. shaping our views around. So you said before you were talking about setting up a quality system and the need to define what high-quality care is in aged care. Well, many people listening will be saying, well, you can't do that. You can't possibly define quality care because it's such an individual What do you say to that? Well, the individual thing is a separate issue. That's about the person's experience of the care they're receiving as opposed to an organisation or us as a sector system defining what we expect. I absolutely think we can do that, but I think we need to not confuse what we need to do as a system to define that to align with broader community expectation and the knowledge we now have about the care of older people and some expectations around that and what the view of an individual is going because even if we had the nirvana and we had it already sorted out today, there would still be some people who may not have experience. Yeah. You can't always give every single person 
great experience because the subjectivity of the individual is always going to I think reverting to individual experience of client can sometimes cloud thinking about what we could do either as an organisation on their own or as a, as a whole system to start defining that. And I think we would get a lot of feedback from the very community very quickly if we started to articulate what we talk, we sought to ask the community what they would see was a, you know, a high-quality system. And, of course, they would be doing that um, within the limitations of their own experience because that's what we all do pretty much with everything. And they would be relying on us as experts to help shape the things that they don't understand. But I don't see the expert collaboratives in care that we see in mm. healthcare. Mm. I don't see the expert centres quite separate to what individual organisations are doing we see in healthcare. I don't see the incentives for driving excellence for the research models for translation across the sector I see. And maybe we won't see that until we start to tease out some of the fundamentals. So I think they themselves will start those sort of conversations. Yes. Because in effect, we don't know what we don't know because we haven't defined what we're trying to achieve. Therefore, we don't know where we sit in relation to that. So what? Well, what we, we have. We have. We've said we want to provide high-quality aged care. We want, we're very vested talking about people's health and well-being. Yes, consistently. And, and quality life. That's right. We talk about it all the time. Mm. <laughs> so let me ask you, what would be, say, from your perspective and your experience, three key components of high-quality care in residential aged care. Only three? Well, <laughs> you can start with three and we'll see how we go. <laughs> well, I think the first thing is well, I think we can't ignore that the client group that we're looking after in aged care are generally there because of their underlying health conditions. They didn't walk in the door voluntarily, being well people at the, as a starting. So... They're living in this sector because of their underlying health issues and community supports generally failing to end up in a residential aid setting. So I think we need to really get serious about managing people's health with an aged care home and not divesting ourselves by pushing people out of hospital. We don't want that. We need to look at it more as a whole system because it's at those transitions between acute care and residential aged care where things are happening to people, there's a change of health status or they're going to and from residential care to hospitals or we've got people going to hospitals to residential aged care at the first point of admission into this new lifestyle, we're assuming. And so focusing on the clinical care component is important. With that comes the work for skills and competency. So I think I can't, you know, separate that. And with that, I'm also talking about GP access. Mm-hmm because we've got challenges around the GP access issues and, again, incentivising GPs to work in sector two and also adequate skilling around the medical to be complemented by having a workforce that interpret the requirements and the instructions of the, med- of the GPs to be able to deliver care up to a level that's reasonable. We know that a lot of people from aged care do die in hospital. Really, this is something that we should be concerned about. Because generally people would prefer not to die in hospital? We know people don't to die in hospital. And I think if it has been your home and you do know the staff, having having the skills and capacities and equipment required, it's a bit of a fundamental moving into care now for the most part. I would know that or my family would know it's probably going to be my husband a resident. 
the environment we have been tackling and uh, we still haven't got that right because there is a balance between having the best environments for older people and particularly those with dementia, but also maintaining the capital costs Hmm. around that. So we know that particularly with dementia, small is best, but how do you do that? A scale that's going to be, you know, sustainable and viable with the limitations of the funding. And I think the other thing I would really focus on is really empowering consumers to help build their expectations around care and service delivery. Because I think if we really empower them, they would be able to assume the advocacy role we're expecting of them, particularly in a market-driven environment, yes, to drive quality. So how, oh, how do we do that? Because clearly... It's required, and we talk about it almost as if it's already happened. As you say, we've got this market-driven environment and, you know, we're giving more and more decision-making to the consumer, and yet for them to really be able to fully participate in that, you're right, they need to be empowered. But empowered is a big word, and it's a difficult environment to really empower. Well, my first thought is we haven't done very much at the moment to help them to see how empowered we could help them to be. Mm. There are complaint systems, yes, but usually people are be probably pretty desperate by the time to bring a government agency to make it. They're pretty much at their wits end and it's just the last straw. Often the, probably the complaint that they've complained about isn't the real complaint anyway, it's just been the last straw. And we know that older people generally, in particular this generation of people still come from a culture of not complaining, getting on with it. And you know, that in itself will change. So how to empower them? I think we've got to be giving them a lot more information. We probably should be doing some more community campaign around it. We need to give them some assurance other than whether a place has been accredited or as to whether or not it's a good place to go. I mean, there are intermittent assessments. We all know the stories of standards, uh, failures between those times, and it's a point in time. And again, that's not me saying it's all about everyone getting geared for an accreditation audit. It's not that, it's just the reality that it's point in time and it may not adequately reflect what's happening all the time. I think the other thing we need to do is we do need to put aged care at a higher level of significance in a policy, particularly with the scaremongering we're hearing about the, you know, the aging population. But I'm not really seeing the, the same rigour around the policy to manage this. What about empowering families? Is that really where we turn our attention? Because if they felt more confident and knew the channels and knew what to ask, because certainly in my experience, way more experience than I have, but as a, as a family member with someone in care facility, one of the most basic things is you don't know who to talk to. You don't know who to ask, even when you know what to ask. It's really hard to find that internal channel to ask a simple question. So perhaps we, we could make it easier for people to feel more empowered. Well, absolutely. That also assumes that people are going to be able to feel that they can complain, even about small things. And I'm maybe using the word complain is probably a word that gets in the road too, because they are fearful. At the end of the day, the people, particularly if it's families who are advocates, are always worried that if they make a complaint, something you know, adverse is going to happen to their family members. They don't want to be seen to be the ones being the That's family. right. 
And that's because they don't have the mobility to get up and move somewhere else. Mm. We talk about, you know, people have choice. And, but the reality is, you know, if you are someone moving from one aged care facility to another, I would be the first thing someone's going to ask is moving. And, you know, we would say this doesn't happen, but I would, it would happen in any industry. You'd have to be very careful that you won't be seen as a complainant when you're looking yes. for somewhere else to go, which, you know, so it's not that easy. And families are so dependent on the organisation and staff to care for the people that they love. So people probably think, well, there's probably lots of things I could complain about, but on balance it's quite good, so I'm not going to make a complaint. I think you've really put your finger on something, and perhaps it's the regulatory compliance-based environment that kind of surrounds quality and safety in aged care. But there's kind of not much between really happy and complaining in terms of being empowered to have an avenue just to have a conversation. So as I said, as a family member, sometimes I just wanted to have a conversation with someone who really knew what was going. It was virtually impossible to find who that was without being asked to fill in a form to, to follow some formal channel. And of course, in acute too, when you think about it, although now with bedside handover, there's a lot more opportunity to have those conversations. So that has improved in it. Perhaps that's the issue that, you know, our infrastructure and our systems don't support empowerment. Well, I think what you were just talking there about in acute was a bit like you know, the family conference scenario and someone at the bedside. And, and I think on balance, people in hospital are more to be able to have a conversation with people who are providing the care. Yes, because they're just out there. They're just out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we tend to talk about family conferencing in a fairly systematised way linked to a care plan we do every six months or something. Yes. But there is something between that and what you're saying. And it's an interesting one because on the one hand, you know, and I could say it for myself, you know, my own day life, sometimes I just want to whinge. I actually don't want anyone to do anything, do anything mm. about it necessarily either. I just want to have a whinge and to feel okay about having the whinge without any repercussion. And then on the side of the service, you know, having a whinge, means if they don't write it down and formalise it, they're always fearful then that they're going to get a cross against their name because they've not collected some important information that should have gone in a complaint system. Yes. So I think that's that tension between the regulation and how it's perceived and the actuality every day for people and their experience when they just maybe want to have a whinge and someone else within the organisation who needs to take it upon themselves to connect the dots when someone's having a few whinges. Yes. To suddenly say, okay, this is more than just a whinge. This person's said this a few times now, we need to actually respond to this a bit differently. You know, and that's quite a sophisticated emotional response, actually, for someone to connect those dots. You also need the consistency of the person to be there to know that this is occurring, to be able to connect dots. But that, that requires a very stable workforce. It requires a good internal system for communication so that the person at the bedside who may not be the person connecting dots or was responsible for connecting the dots but does pass the information along the way that they're going to be supported about that and not feel that they're at fault and so that um, these things can be picked up and heard. So that comes back, as you said, it comes back very much to a systematised approach and good governance, doesn't it? And I wanted to talk um, a little bit about governance and in aged care facilities. And I would add culture to that. And culture, yes, indeed. If you could 
send one message to Resi Aged Care boards, what would it be? Well, the main message I would be putting out there is to really question the information there. And that's not suggesting that their executives and the people in their organisation are not doing a job, but to absolutely question everything that comes their way and to not isolate themselves to comparing themselves with another agent provider, which people have no alternative to do at the moment because we don't have any other way to really compare ourselves, notwithstanding the National Indicator Program, which is really in its infancy. But maybe look at like fields. We can learn from what has happened in acute care and in health care. We don't have to be always comparing ourselves within our own system. We can look to other organisations that are also care-oriented to see what we can learn from them. And that's not, that's not a culture that we have in the aged care sector at the moment. We keep on saying different. But actually there's much we can learn from, which is where I think we started this conversation yes. about the differences and advances between aged care. And so we... We spend a lot of time saying we're not hospitals, and we're not, but we're on a spectrum of healthcare provision. And if it comes back to my starting point, which is around sure ourselves around safe systems for care as a starting point, which in turn leads itself to quality experience and outcomes for people. Yes, we need to do more than deliver clinical needs, I understand that, but we do need to get that base settled, and there's much we can learn. So there's two parts I would Certainly, ask people to engage in an ind- in the indicator program that's out there now. I would. I also think boards and executives need to be starting to think about how their organisations can be part of a broader lobby to help them, because at the moment there's not much assistance out there for organisations. You know, they've got the set of standards, and there's a there's a regulatory environment around that. There's very little other support, so people are spending a lot of money internally in each of their organisations as I say, holding on to it now and more likely to do so because of the competitive environment where it becomes a commodity. So taking the advocacy beyond the need for more finances to make the sector sustainable, which is something we talk about often Mm, as a sector, as a whole sector, we don't talk about what we need to help us improve safety and quality. And I'm going to come back to where I started. We don't have a problem statement because we haven't defined what we mean health and wellbeing. So we don't have that cultural inquiry or a problem that we've identified that says we actually need more than a regulatory system. We call on other bodies to help shape better systems around safety and quality and take us on a journey of maturity around. Yes. That we are looking for the same sort of investment and structure that Youth Health has had. And if you could do one thing, I'll give you one wish... What would be the big impact thing? I mean, you know, you've done a ton of stuff here in Victoria, done things that no one else done as far as we know. Someone might come out of the woodwork, but the indicator program was groundbreaking uh, and looking at an evidence base for the care of, you know, high-risk areas, all sorts of things that really should have an impact. And maybe I've got a two-part question. First part is what do you think you've done that has had a big impact? Uh, two, you know, is there something else that you would wish that you could do? What I most reflect on is that there wasn't really a sector identity around safety and quality mm-hmm. aged care when I first started in the role. Whilst, as I said earlier, much of what we've been doing around the, the research and translating that into practice is still in its infancy itself in real terms. But I think there's a much, there's a much um, 
much more of a sector identity and a shared understanding around us working towards the same sort of goal as the sector that wasn't now, you know, I may be over promoting that. But certainly there are relationships across the sector and conversations happening in the sector. And I think arguably the quality forums that we ran for years was a big part of helping people to unite and to have the conversations around issues around evidence transmission, indicators, consumer health literacy and all those things, comprehensive health assessment, training those yes. sort of issues. That wouldn't have been there if we hadn't created a community around. So I'd say that was probably the, the most important part because that in itself, and particularly now the leadership group, that, that has its own momentum now and it's also led to an expectation around how we do support mm. the sector. So again, building expectation that we are, had to respond in our own service delivery capacity around that. That's a bolus of work. I'm going to slip in a supplementary question there because a number of things you mentioned, a couple of them I'd forgotten. So of those key initiatives that you've just mentioned, is, is there any one of them that's had a big impact that you've been able to see on care? I'd say the biggest impact has been the indicator program, not because that was the one we necessarily should have started with, even though we did. And I'd say the impact has been because that in itself has generated so much other work that has generated other initiatives. And so I would say that the work around standardised care processes, which is around how to provide best care at areas of key risk, wouldn't have occurred if we hadn't started the indicator program. Yes. Because what I've found is this is quite an interesting process. You can't actually, if you started off and said, we're going to do these 20 things today, it wouldn't have happened. So it's as a whole, I would say, that that is its most important. The one that I found probably the most rewarding is the comprehensive health assessment training. We were getting immediate feedback around increased skill and confidence of staff on the ground who were going to go back and use it, and in fact did use it. It was quite transformational stories about improving care. And, and enjoyment. And enjoyment. That's, that's what I loved hearing. The satisfaction of their day-to-day role was significantly improved just from feeling that confidence and that competence and that they were able to make a real difference to those residents. It was, it was such a lesson for me to hear that. Skilling up the clinical capacity of that staff around care of older people led to their experience yes. and quality of life. For, for them people, and for the residents, yes. For both of them. Yes, yeah. for everybody. So one thing then, if you had a wish, you've been able to do an awful lot, but thinking about sector as a whole or even thinking about it, you know, individual residents, what do you think is a, a nice big bang? Having an agency or someone like the Commission extend their remit to have a broader focus and around aged care. What we've been seeing in healthcare, we get the same level of emphasis in aged care. I know the numbers are not the same, which is probably part of why it doesn't happen, but the impact and significance for people the last years years of their life and the family around those people years of life is quite incomparable. And one big thing would be doing something on that scale but and pursuing that as a sector. As a sector, yes. as as a country. Yes. Just to wrap up, Marie, we all want to leave a legacy, particularly those of us who work in quality and safety improvement. We're all doing, or we think we're doing our bit to try and improve people's lives. What would you like people to say that all the effort and and work and focus and and thought you've put into this over the years, what difference would you like to think it's made? 
Kathy, I really don't think I could answer that question. I think it's for <laughs> other people to judge, but I would actually reverse that. And I did um, that when I was talking about having received recognition with the Public Service Medal, is that what happened when I, I was awarded that medal was it was a flood of memories of all the older people I cared for. And I've still got the names and the faces of those people who shaped passion and energy I've actually got to make improvements in mm. the sector. And so I can only count myself as being amazingly lucky to have had experience of working with those people. There's the one thing I would learn from aged care, that the people who do love it really do love it, and they generally overcommit. And you get more from people that you care for than what you give them. And it's the, it's the uh, privilege of the relationships for a long term with families and residents that I take away and has shaped what I've done in my entire career. As I said, I never have thought in a million years <laughs> I would have had a career in aged care as a, as a nurse, but I can't say I could have found a more rewarding place to work. Fantastic. And that's a beautiful note to finish on. So, Marie Cameron, thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experience and your expertise with us today. Thanks, Cathy.